Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control Up Delete with me, Emma Gannon. Today's guest is the brilliant novelist Anne Napolitano. In this episode, we are discussing her new novel, Dear Edward. You might have seen it being advertised. It's a huge book for 2020. I absolutely loved it and I wanted to read you the blurb quickly because I think that's the best way to explain what the book is about um, because it really is a very heartfelt, deep and meaningful Um, but also very endearing book. It's about a flight that takes off from New York to Los Angeles. There are 191 passengers on board. Among them is a young woman taking a pregnancy test in the airplane toilet. There is a millionaire Wall Street guy flirting with one of the air hostesses. And there's an injured soldier returning from Afghanistan. And there's two parents moving across the country with their sons. So, so much is going on on the plane and it suddenly crashes in a field. And this isn't a spoiler, by the way, because it's on the back of the book. And basically, there is one sole survivor who is a 12-year-old called Edward. So, Dear Edward depicts Edward's life post-crash and how he struggles to make sense of the world and the meaning of his survival. And he has sudden fame and he's trying to find his place in the world again without his family. I really recommend this book and I absolutely loved meeting Anne. She's such a brilliant person and writer and I could have chatted to her all day. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Anne and I hope you go and order a copy of Dear Edward. And a little reminder, if you liked it, please do leave me a little rating. So here is the episode. So congratulations on Dear Edward. How is this book launch different from the from the previous two? It's very different. I mean, it hasn't it comes out in January in the US and February in the UK. So it hasn't come out yet and it feels like being pregnant for like 2 years actually because you sell the book. So I, by the time it comes out, it will I will have sold it sold it a year and a half prior. Right. Um so that's a long like promotional window, but even when I was selling it I felt very lucky in that I felt like I was playing the role of a writer that everyone was very excited about, which was a role I had never played before. And it was it was more I'm, I turned 48 this week. So this has been what I've been wanting to do and what I've been doing, like actually doing for the entirety of my adulthood, like while doing other things to make money, et cetera. So I I feel like a wash in gratitude, but also aware of how random it is to some extent. Because like you said, there's so many books that come out and there are so many less than how many books come out, but so many wonderful books that come out as well. And being sort of picked up on the crest of a wave of like publisher enthusiasm is very helpful and very gratifying. So I'm I'm just trying to enjoy it, but it feels it feels in part like very meaningful because I've worked so long and hard. Um, and also I feel aware that I'm just fortunate as well. Mm. There must be something that's really nice about that because I think, um, and I know like Elizabeth Gilbert did a TED talk about the kind of um, almost the negative side of like this mm. kind of crazy whirlwind success when like you're quite young and you're just getting started and it's almost like you can be haunted by that. Yeah. And I actually find like the opposite story quite refreshing and also did you find, I don't know if this is me just assuming, but did you find that actually Dear Edward is is quite a pure like book that you wanted to write? You probably had the expectations of it doing the same as the others? I wasn't sure it would sell, to be honest with you, because I've published two novels before this. Um, it takes me a, quite a long time to write a novel. So I published my first book in 2004. 
And the last one was in 2011. And it didn't do that well. It was critically well received, but the sales was not overwhelming. And at that point, publishers, generally speaking, are like not that excited about picking up your next book because you, your track record is not uh, profitable. Um, so I, I wrote this. It took me eight years to write this book. And I really wrote it like because it was a story that I needed to tell. And it's at this point, I know that I have to write in order to be like a whole human being. So I, and I happen to have an amazing agent. So I thought if it is sellable, she will sell it. But I didn't know if it would sell. So then when it became like a sort of like a bidding situation with public, I was like, I could not have been more surprised. <laughs> like, I literally was like, I hope that I hope it sells like for very little money. Yeah. So it sort of turned on its head, which is very exciting. But I couldn't expect that. There was no reason for me to. And I just didn't. Yeah. It's funny. I interviewed Alain de Botton recently. Mm, I, I listened to that one. Yes. yes. And he was sort of He's saying, um, you know, you kind of have to in human life not be like really pessimistic but you kind of have to like understand that the worst might happen or at least not have like really high expectations all the time because then you're always going to be disappointed. I really believe in low expectations which is not pessimism. I mean I definitely find that that works the best for me because then you're just delighted like Mm -hmm. 50% of the time when something nice happens because you weren't anticipating it. And I think being this age, too, I had another writer friend of mine recently, and I was talking to him about it. And I was like, you know, if this happened to me when I was 27, I really would feel quite full of myself. I would think I was pretty hot shit. Um, but I do not now, like, at all. And he's he paused for a moment. He's like, you know, you're right. No matter what happens, I think it's too late for you to be an asshole. And I was like, I think it is too late for me to be an asshole. Like, I love that. I want that on a T-shirt. <laughs> that is like, start a merch It's too late for me to be an asshole. <laughs> That's brilliant. Because before we get into Dear Edward, because I really want to talk to you about all of that mm. and the inspiration behind it and everything. But um, just for people listening, because I know a lot of writers listen to this podcast, how did you deal with the rejections for the first book? Because I know that that was part of what I kind of learned about you and your career that actually you, as we all, by the way, I've been rejected. My books have been rejected a lot as well. It's part of it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's part of publishing. But how did you kind of get through that? Well, I went to graduate school, which is much more common here. I I think it's becoming more common in the UK. But I went to New York University for their MFA program when I was like 23, I guess. And um, while I was there, I wrote my first novel. And I sent it out to like, it was rejected by 80 agents. Some of them like scribbled a nice note in the margin, which you're like, oh, maybe someday. So I put that aside and I wrote another novel. Um, and at that point, I was working as a personal assistant. And I am not a short story writer, so I had never published anything, which is part of the problem of being like solely a novelist is that you're digging into these enormous projects and like swimming across the ocean. And then you have no idea what's going to happen on the other side. So I wrote another novel while working as a personal assistant. And I w- had three agents that wanted to represent me. So I got to choose an agent, which was very exciting. And then she wasn't able to sell it. Like the editor that wanted to buy it when I'm her boss went on maternity leave and she wasn't able to get the, uh, the go ahead. And so I had to put that one in a drawer too. And at that point, I was probably in my late 20s. And I was dep- like, that made me depressed because I was like, I don't think this is going to work. Mm-hmm. And I had everyone knew, like I had gone all in, I'd gone to graduate school, I was working as a personal assistant. But with the caveat that everyone knew my real thing was writing. And my father was sending me like brochures for law school and telling me that I should go see a career counselor and like figure myself out again. And so what I discovered in that time of sort of despair was that the only way for me to get out of 
the depression was to write. So I started writing again purely to to feel better. And then there was enormous freedom in that because I was like, oh, like I actually have to do this or I'm going to be too sad to be alive. So it took the weight off. I was like, I'm going to keep doing this whether I publish or not. It, it removed the end goal. Um, and I felt I felt light and I felt like I knew who I was and I knew what my plan was regardless. And so I wrote my third novel and I based it on my mother's family because I was like, no one's going to read this. Um, I'm safe. And that was the one that sold. So that was my third book. And it did okay. Um, it sold in the UK too. And then uh, and then I made enough money to work – to write for like three years full time. Um, so I stopped being a personal assistant. And I was like, I'll easily write a novel in three years. And that book took me eight years. Mm-hmm. And then that was my second novel that came out, which also – you know, was well-reviewed, but quiet. And then I embarked on Dear Edward. So, mm-hmm. and I've taught uh, fiction writing during that time and I've done sort of business writing. But the thing that sustained me really was that realization when I was like 27 that I was going to have to do this, whether, you know, publishing was part of it or not. Mm. I love that because I just think that is that is being a writer, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's not, it's not just wanting to be a writer. It's like, physically you have to do the act of it to feel yourself because I wondered this is just me being nosy because I kind of had uh, an experience like this but I actually felt like really sad when the book when I finished writing my book Mm, me too I was like I liked doing it and I know that actually that's quite people listening might be like oh you're so lucky that you actually enjoy the writing because a lot of people find it so so hard yeah but I actually I kind of like being in the middle of a project and when it ends I feel a bit lost yeah I love having like a fully realized a fictional world that like is in my head at all times that I can sort of dip in and out of. I feel bereft when it's only my real life, which I really like my real life. It's lovely. But yes, I completely understand. And for Dear Edward in particular, I was I would have liked to keep writing that book for like another three years because I loved being in that world so much. Mm-hmm. The book so prior many to different that, characters. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's not practical <laughs> <laughs> to just keep writing it and it wouldn't have been to the benefit of the book. Yes, and we wouldn't have got to mm-hmm. read it, which I'm mm-hmm. glad I have. So with the book, so Dear Edward is a coming-of-age story. It's really sad in places. Obviously, the the actual thing that happens, the catalyst for the book is a plane crash where there's one survivor, which is Edward. And but it's also a very uplifting book as well. And I love when, like, tragedy and and sort of like a solo journey kind of combine uh, was It was inspired by a real story, wasn't it? Yes. In 2010, there was a flight, a full commercial flight from South Africa bound for London, and it crashed in Libya. And only, there was only one survivor, and it was a nine-year-old Dutch boy named Ruben Van Assau. And this was huge news at the time. Do you remember it? I don't remember No, it. So no, like one out of every 10 people that I speak to remember it vividly, but we were all talking about it at the time. It was really big news. They found him like a half mile from the rest of the debris from the plane, um, still buckled into his seat, and he had a punctured lung and a broken leg, but he was otherwise fine. And everyone else in the plane died immediately, including his parents and his brother. And his aunt and uncle came from Holland and adopted him, and they brought him home. And they did an amazing job of protecting his privacy. Like from the very beginning, there was no interviews. There was nothing. So, But actually, it was in 2010, which was when social media sort of had crested for the first time, where everyone that you knew was on Facebook, including your mother. And so they, young girls created like a page on Facebook about this boy, Ruben, 
who was like a beautiful little boy. And there's a, they released a photo from the hospital with like a bandage around his head. But he was just like so sweet looking. Um, and these young girls <clears throat> were posting about how sad they were for him and how terrible they would feel and sort of emoting their own feelings at him into the world. And there were aviation, amateur aviation sort of nerds who were posting online speculating about the crash because it because it crashed in Libya. There's no transparency actually about that crash. Um, so they don't know why. So people are speculating. There was there was somehow online one of the hospital workers told the press that the president of Libya had called the little boy in the hospital to wish him well. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God, like, why? Mm-hmm. Like, what does this poor child have to speak to the president of Libya for? That is not what you want to be doing when you're no. getting over that. And what are you supposed to say? Yeah. Um, so all these sort of, up until then, you know, if a tragedy happened, it was reported to us via, you know, the news stations. And now there was more of like a 365 degree view where you were seeing all these other people weigh in on it. And all of that fascinated me. Yeah, because I remember being in a meeting once and someone was, and this was like years ago, and they were showing like the power of Twitter Mm. in a presentation. And one of the screen grabs was the Hudson River um, crash that everyone survived, didn't they? I think there's a, what's the film called with Tom Hanks? Sully. Sully. Yeah. But apparently that was one of the first tweets that was like a news story that didn't like reach the BBC. Oh, it, the, it reached the BBC after. Yeah, it broke on Twitter. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's because people would happen to be down by the river with their phones. I, re- I mean, I remember that too, uh, which is so interesting. And so actually, interesting. I use Twitter more for news than anything else. Like, I like that I have like a new, I do tweet deck, so you have like broken into columns, so I have like a news column. Right. But yeah, that really fascinated me. Um, and with the character of Edward, I just wanted. Is there anything that you did, I don't know, that might be slightly different with how you got into his head and his character? Um, I, I hear like novelists say that they like make a Spotify playlist for a character or something. I just oh, wondered God. if you, if there's anything you, or do you, you know, is it like going for a walk and just thinking or? Well, actually for this book, the book before it took eight years too. And I found that book really difficult. And, you know, they say there's the different styles of being a writer. You can be an intuitive writer or a plotter. And so there's a great Yale Doctorow quote where he says that writing a novel is like driving home on a foggy night. You can see as far as the end of the headlights, but that's enough to get you home or you see like one thing at a time. And that's always how I had written. And it's like an act of discovery and like someone enters the room and you're like, oh, what is he or she going to say? Which is a lot of fun. But that prior book, I had gone like meandered and I'd written like 400 page tangents and then cut them. It was very frustrating. And my husband had watched me go through that. And so he he said for this new book, which was Dear Edward, he suggested that I not write for a year because I really love writing sentences. Like that's like my happy place. Mm-hmm. I was not allowed to write sentences. I could read and do research and take notes and think, but I wasn't allowed to write. Wow. I've heard that before from um, certain workshop. Like I, I listened to a lot of writing podcasts and, mm-hmm. and someone was like, the best thing you can do is not write. I found that it was very... I'm doing it again now for whatever the next book will be because the thing is, I think when, for me anyway, when I'm writing, some part part of my brain does not, the cerebral part doesn't lock in. Mm -hmm. It's very like lyrical and intuitive and like it's wonderful because you're like following some kind of emotional pathway and like some kind of truth. But engaging my brain before that allowed me to figure out, for instance, like what other passengers I wanted to go into the minds of on the plane. And I did reading and research of each of them. And then my husband was like, I think you should read outside of your normal genre, which would be literary fiction. So I read 
I read the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I guess I had always meant to read but had never read. The way that Gaiman just sort of like drops boundaries made me create a character on the plain Florida who believes in many, you know, she's had many lives and she leaves in reincarnation because I was kind of like, it made me look at like the potential of like what we could be um, fictionally and in real life in a different way. Um, so that year was really critical. And I think the Edward part, the plane ended up being the easiest part for me because you, as a beginning, a middle and an end, they're you're on like a very mm. limited um, spatial plane. Mm. I've um, got to say, by the way, I'm really scared of flying. Yeah. <laughs> so when I um, when I picked up the book, I was like, I'm going in. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm I am too, unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, and I would never. I don't know. I feel like I tried to write a book about a plane crash that wasn't about a plane crash because I wouldn't read a book about a plane crash. You know what I mean? Like, and that's not what interests me. What interests me is even in looking at the real story about the the Dutch boy was. Like, how could he be okay? How could you walk away from that wreckage and the loss of your family and everything that you've ever mm. known and not only survive but learn how to live? Mm. So it was almost like I had to find a way that that boy could be okay mm. in order to, like, bear the fact that that child had gone through that. While I was writing, there was like a Kickstarter for a documentary called Soul Survivor, in which one of the soul survivors of a plane crash wanted to go around the world and interview like the six remaining uh, soul survivors of plane crashes. And my the boy who I based it on wasn't part of that because it had just sort of happened while they were doing it. So I like gave money to the Kickstarter and it came out toward the end. And they all have the same look in their eyes. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And some of them had gone to like adrenaline, living life with adrenaline where they like rode motorcycles at high speeds, et cetera. And then others kept le like led very small lives mm. um, out of fear. Um, it's an enormous thing to carry, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I am, and I'm, I, I can realize now after three books that a big theme for me is how to live a meaningful life. And so Edward is put in such a stark situation yeah. that like you really, it, it just, had to be played out yeah and it's interesting from the first page knowing knowing that yeah and those are my favorite types of novels where you kind of you're kind of you know what you're in for like from the beginning almost like mm -hmm. it's set up and um even though you don't know what's going to happen you you kind of do boxes yeah. on the back page but I was wondering how you kind of know that an idea is worth pursuing because I was reading about is it Emma Donoghue who wrote mm. Room yeah which is based on the actual Fritzl real story which was awful and I think she was on YouTube one day and she watched an interview with one of the survivors from that mm. and then wrote the book and I just wondered like there's so much there's so many news stories what what I made know. you like pick well when I when I teach fiction writing I always tell the students to pay attention to their obsessions because I think of it as if we each have a specifically calibrated magnet board inside. I picture like our torso as like a, a sheet of magnet inside of it. And and yours is specifically calibrated in a way that's different from your best friend or your twin sister. or um, And you have to, as a writer, uh, pay attention because it's so noisy. Like there's so many distractions. Like you said, there's so much news. There's so many books. There's so many movies, et cetera. Um, you have to start listening for what thwangs against your magnet board. And that's part of where, like, at this point, I could see that things about how to live a meaningful life or, like, how do we step up? Like, how do we be ourselves? How do we how do we really live our life 
are stories that hit for me. And and this there's like a stickiness to that obsession when I get really interested in something that like now at this point sets off like alarm bells in my head where I'm like, oh, this is yeah, this is hitting me for some other reason. So I was also wondering, and I, this might be quite a millennial question, but um, <laughs> in this world of like, you know, getting online validation and like mm. someone retweeting you and the dopamine rush of like someone's commented on this thing. How do you kind of um, take yourself away and, and keep going on a project where like basically no one is kind of giving you any feedback immediately on things? I know that's the point in writing novels. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I think I think partly I'm weird, like because I remember like being in like fifth, like being 10 or whatever. And this doesn't sound like it's connected, but somehow I think it's connected. Like when all the girls would like rush together and be like, oh, my God, did you hear what he said? Oh, my God, this, ha-. you know, like some juicy gossip had just and like and girls like just go whoomp into like a <laughs> group because they have to find out what happened. I would always back away. Like I, was, I found that very distasteful even as a child. Like I did not want to be part of that hive. And if there was like a cute boy and all the girls were like around him, I was like, that's the boy I'm not talking to. So there's something inside of me that like backs away from the dopamine, you know, receptors Mm -hmm. and the like the validation that comes in those places. So I feel very fortunate, actually, because I don't think I didn't do anything. I think I was weirdly wired that way. And then I have two writers that I met in graduate school, um, Hannah Tinty, uh, who wrote The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley that came out uh, as well, Good Thief um, and Animal Crackers. And then Helen Ellis, who had a essay collection come out last year called Southern Lady Code and a collection before that called American Housewife. And oh, I read that. Oh, you did? Amazing, yeah. yeah. Sh- short stories. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's hilarious. She's like a complete character. So the three were very different, but we, we went to NYU together and we've been each other's first readers for like wow, 23 years. That's brilliant. Yeah. So I give them you know, sections and chunks, and then they <clears throat> they tell me what's terrible and, and what's working. So I'm not in a vacuum. Right. So you're not, because I think sometimes, yeah, I know quite a few writers who are so solitary that it's like I don't you know need how. to kind of get out of that bubble a little bit. Yeah, I would, I mean, the thing to me is that when you're writing something, it's like you, you're creating a river that you're inside, like you're floating down the river as you're making the river. And someone needs to be standing on the banks to be like, oh, there's a, you know, a tree fell up ahead. You got a beer right. Like, I don't, you can't mm-hmm. do that yourself. Like, I literally don't understand when writers. I think a lot of there are some writers, particularly very successful ones, who end up relying on like their editor to be mm-hmm. that person. Do you like being edited? I love being edited. Same. Yeah, I love it. I'm like, this oh is so. God. I'm like, thank you for making us better because yes. you've given me another pair of eyes, another perspective, or yes. you know, the the classic thing where it's like. Mm, this timeline doesn't quite match up or, you know, noticing yeah. all those things. Oh, it's that's like the best thing ever, especially at that stage where like that's the, you know, the end part. So like if you can improve it, I feel like by like 3%, it's just like a magical 3% because you're you're close to the ma- you're close to the story being what it should be. Mm-hmm. And 3% closer is like ecstasy. Yeah. Can you imagine it being on screen? No. I mean, it has a film editor. Well, Part of it is that it, like, never happens for writers. You know, like, it's... It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I know that um, it's, like, such a long process as well to the point where it's almost like, I don't know, I feel the same with, like, certain things. Really? We'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just don't... I think that's part of me being 48, too, where I've, I've seen so many friends and acquaintances and writers have everything happen to them. And the the movie thing 
almost never happens. Like it'll go places and it's exciting and interesting and whatever. But it's just not something that I – I certainly don't consider it like two paths, like the novel and the movie. You know, mm-hmm. like that, that yes, doesn't yes. make sense to me. Are you interested in meeting readers and doing events and things or are you happy with both? Because I know a lot of people don't necessarily kind of – I think writers – what I find interesting is writing is like the complete opposite of like public speaking. I know. It's crazy. And I'm like, why do people like – Make people do it. <laughs> I don't know. It's so. It is so interesting. It's so strange that that's my for my first book. I had been avoiding public speaking since I was like twelve because I had had to give a presentation <laughs> in class and that thing where your voice starts wavering like you're going to cry, and I was so appalled that I was like absolutely never again. And then I sold my first book and I was like, oh no, like. And I had been to enough readings at that point that I was like. What I really want is not to have someone in the audience thinking, oh, my God, is she going to cry? Like, you know, so like I had to get good enough that I wasn't going to put anyone in the audience in that position. That was like my goal. And so I bought leather pants and um, cat's eye glasses that I did not need. They were clear framed. At the, now I need glasses, but at the time I did not. <laughs> and I got a very low prescription for Xanax from a doctor friend of mine. And I thought, well, I'll dress up like as another version of me. And that will be like a role that I play. And then I also read. That's so interesting. (laughs) So I wear like bigger glasses when I'm doing like more kind of out there things because it's almost like a weird armor. Yeah. It's like Clark Kent or something where you're like, oh, okay, I put these on. Well, it'd be reverse. You want to be Superman. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And then I also practiced what I knew I was going to read literally every night for a month to my boyfriend after dinner. And that actually, I think the muscle memory of that was. And then the day that of my first reading for my first book my grandmother died that morning, and which was expected. She was elderly, obviously, and everything. But she, actually, the book was sort of based on her. And, and I had to drive two hours to where the reading was, and I forgot my leather pants, my Xanax, and my glasses. No. So I had to go and do it just like as myself. And I didn't die, and I didn't cry, and it was okay, I think, because of the practicing. Um, I really love that because um, I actually thought it was just me. Like, I genuinely do a very oh, similar really? thing where I'm like, I, I guess separate smart. them out quite a lot. Because yeah. I think it's like when um, you go and watch a comedian mm. and then you sort of see them afterwards in the bar and they're, they're entirely different. Yeah. And, and then you're like, oh, they're not just that all the time. Yeah. It's like that would be exhausting. Well, I have fr- a friend of mine, um, I think, oh, Hannah Tinty, one of my writer friends, she pretends... Like when she's about to go on stage, she pretends she's Elizabeth Gilbert because Elizabeth Gilbert is like effervescence defined. I mean, that woman is like, I mean, I guess she says she's a mixture of an introvert and extrovert. But like I saw her speak to like 700 people once and she's just like a light, you know. So Hannah pretends to be her. I feel like that's too big of a leap for me (laughs) to pretend to be Elizabeth Gilbert. Like, but I'll pretend to be like another writer friend of mine who's like somewhere in between. No, it's like whatever works. Yeah, because you're like, what would what would Elizabeth, what would Elizabeth say? She would be comfortable. She would like yeah. she would breathe. <laughs> yeah, and also I'm quite interested sometimes in that line between like full confidence versus like a little bit of arrogance because yeah. I think it's like they they can kind of go hand in hand a little bit. But it's, I look at someone like Liz Gilbert and she's like so fulfilled and kind of like self actualized and self aware. Yeah. She's never arrogant. No. Ever I'm and I'm like, how do, how does one do that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't mind arrogance. I don't think I mind. I mean, I I don't think I am arrogant, but I I don't mind it if someone like kicks ass. Then I'm like, go ahead. Yeah, you know, have have a little cockiness. That's fine. Like if Lionel Messi, as a football player, wants to say I'm the best football player in the world, I'm like, true. Yeah. You know, so that's okay. 
maybe it's slightly gendered as well because I think no one really likes a woman who's like, I'm amazing. I think that's and, uh, true. And hopefully we'll get to that point where it's like, yeah. Messi can say it and like, yeah. you know. Well, I think, yes. Well, I think in the US we have like Megan Rapinoe being like, I kick ass, I'm amazing. And we're like, yes, you are. Yes. Uh, but it, that is definitely a newer. And it's, I think there's a di- there's a UK and US kind of difference in mm-hmm. like, br- I think British people are very self-deprecating. That's true. And I think actually English people really don't like arrogance. Mm. I think in America there's a, a we're more uh, generous kind of celebrate cockiness. Yeah, like there's a lot of like confidence that goes flying around yeah. and confidence and arrogance, you know. Well, we're we're kind of recording this in the past. You'll be listening to this when the book is available. So I know I'm asking you this kind of in in the in like the past that we've recorded it, but you, what are you excited about kind of around publication? Are you is there like a certain message you want people to get from the book or oh, I, um, Sorry, it's such a difficult no, question. No, it's well it, it plays into the how do you feel about like the the outward facing public thing? Because I will be out in the world, which makes me nervous. I'm very proud of the book. I I love the book, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm very happy to sort of sit beside it and you know try and I don't know. I hope people are moved by it. Like I hope people. My dream is actually not like bestseller list or whatever. My dream is that someone like wants to hug it to their chest. You know, like the way that I do for my most – the books that have moved me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, wa- I wanted to create a world that was knit together with kindness and love. Like that was one of the – that's part of one of the reasons that I love living in that world because I, I loved everyone in it. And everyone was trying mm-hmm. um, to help Edward mostly um, yes. in their own ways. So I'm happy to step into that landscape, whether that's in talking about the book or hopefully in – you know, people reading it. Yeah, totally. Because it, even in the darkest of things, love is shown. Yeah. And it's kind of, I don't know, that's that's the thing that moves me the most, actually. Um, and I actually went to the 9-11 museum the other day. Oh, you did. And I, I didn't, I was like kind of feeling, you know, obviously very respectful and sad. And then I read a message from, it was like the text message that someone sent from the plane to their wife. Mm. And that just broke me. Yeah. And it was like, but then I was like, love is being celebrated in this museum. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. I mean, there's something, I mean, obviously, when you lose, as Edward has lost his parents and his brother and lost sort of the life that he knew. And it's because of his deep love for those people and that life that he's in grief. So. Because love it, and grief are yes, kind of two, two sides, sides of the coin. Of the same coin. Yeah. And you're in love, like you're standing in love in those moments, even if you feel soaked with pain. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's when we're most alive. Actually, I was thinking recently of the nine of of nine eleven because I was living in New York during when it happened, and immediately people rushed to the like hundreds, maybe thousands, rushed to the local hospitals to donate blood because they were assuming there was going to be survivors and that they would need blood. And then uh, emergency workers from all over the country got in their trucks and cars in like Colorado mm-hmm. and Utah and uh, New Mexico and started driving to New York City so they could help. Mm-hmm. And as they entered the city, people were lining the West Side Highway clapping for them and cheering. Mm-hmm. Is in those most horrible of moments, we just – we. It's love, you know, like we want to we want to show up for each other. We want to help. We want to we're like brought to the streets and and applauding people being good, Mm. you know. So there's something like in those horrible moments that are our best selves 
that is a celebration of our humanity, even in moments of great loss. So true. I feel like that really sums up your book. Oh, that's um, sad and nice. Really beautifully, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, just lastly, what are you excited about coming up? It doesn't have to be work-related. It could be anything, but just in general, very open-ended last question. Oh. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading the new Philip Pullman book. I'm looking forward to read. It's all, it's all books for me. I'm looking Great. forward we, to Great. We want recommendations. Oh, well, I'm actually excited about the NBA basketball season, too, because I have two sons who are very into it, and it's fun. My uh, boyfriend's obsessed with basketball. Oh, really? And it's like a real thing. Yeah. Oh, well, it's we fun. Have... It's fun to watch. It it's is. like the only sport that I actually can watch and be like, I'm enjoying this. And the narratives and the characters are amazing. Like, I just enjoy, like, the physical specimens of, like, LeBron James where you're like, oh, my, and Anthony Davis. And yeah. I can, whatever. So I'm excited about that. Erin um, Morgenstern has a new book out. She wrote The Night Circus, and she has a book called The Starless Sea, which I'm excited to read. I'm looking forward to 2020 which will be a very different year for me than I'm accustomed to. I really like being in my house, like alone <laughs> writing, um, but I am very appreciative of the changes that, you know, this book brings mm -hmm. for me. Yes. Also, I feel like a key takeaway for me, for me from this as well is like to be a writer, you kind of do have to read. I think we yes. forget that. Yes, yes. And actually, when I'm deep in the writing, like in the last three, it takes me so long. So the last three years of a book, say, or maybe the last six months, if you're a quicker writer, you're, I'm so deep in it that I I can't be in more than deeply into more than one fictional world at a time. So since I've finished it, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm like reading so voraciously. And it. I was a little worried that I didn't love reading as much as I used to, but it's not true. It's just that I can't uh, be completely subsumed in more than one at mm. a time. So I feel I'm, like it's a muscle you need to almost practice in a weird way. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's true that about our attention spans. It might not be true, but um, I know that I have to like force myself to do it and realize that I love it. Yeah. Well, yeah. the social media thing is a real distraction. Yeah, totally. I mean, legit, our phones are not oh, not God. helping us. Like three pages and refresh. I know. Three pages. Another refresh. I know, it's true. But anyway, thank you so, so much. That was fascinating. And um, it's such a joy to talk to you about this book. And I'm just so excited for everyone else to read it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you.